Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we start this week's podcast, I wanted to let you know about the return of the internship program at Spiked. We're offering paid placements to aspiring writers, podcasters, and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the finest political magazine in the world. You'll work with Spiked full-time for six months in London starting this July. And there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'd help us to produce our articles, features and essays, or an audio-visual internship where you'd help us to produce our videos and podcasts like this one. You have until Friday the 16th of June to send your application, so don't delay. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com interns. That's spiked-online.com slash interns. During the neoliberal era, we've had the creation in the U.S. of a category called the working poor. In the United States, about one out of every five households uses at least one means-tested welfare program. About 70%, the majority of these Households are headed by a full-time worker. These are full-time workers who, no matter how hard they work, how many hours they work, they cannot support themselves, much less children or, or a caregiving spouse. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Michael Lind. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, last time you were on the show, we were talking about some of the ideas in your brilliant book, The New Class War. And this time I want to talk to you about your new book, which is published this week, called Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. This book is brimming with ideas, not only on how we got to the crisis of low pay, where so many Americans are being underpaid, but also in terms of the consequences that this crisis of wages has on people's lives, on society, on demography, on identity. You argue that all those contemporary crises in America are exacerbated, if not caused, by the crisis of wages, the crisis of low pay. Um, So there's a lot to dig into. There's a lot to ask you about. But I wonder if we might kick off with you giving us a brief outline of how bad things have got in relation to the pay that some Americans are receiving for the work they do. Because obviously there's always been an issue of cheap labour. You open the book with a fantastic quote from Frederick Douglass from his 1871 essay, Cheap Labour. So there's always been cheap labour. What has changed over the past few decades, do you think? And, And what is the situation like right now in terms of the low pay that some Americans are receiving? Well, in the middle of the 20th century, In the United States during the New Deal era that lasted up until the 70s and 80s under both Republicans and Democrats, uh, and uh, also in uh, the UK and Western Europe, you had what is sometimes called the mid-century settlement. Uh, That is, you had strong labor unions, you had uh, fairly limited outsourcing and and offshoring, uh, limited immigration, uh, and, uh, you know, for the most part, you had the first mass middle class that had been seen in history in the U.S. or U.K. or Western Europe uh, during the so-called neoliberal era that begins with uh, on the right with Thatcher and Reagan, but it's uh, continued by center-left figures 
like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, uh, we get a completely opposite system. And I describe the two systems, the mid-century one and the neoliberal one that followed it. Uh, the first one was the living wage social insurance system. Basically, if you worked 40 hours a week in the U.S. or the equivalent in Europe, you weren't poor. And if you were unemployed or retired, uh, social insurance, for the most part based on uh, contributory taxes, like payroll taxes, made sure you weren't poor. Uh, during the neoliberal era, we've had the creation in the U.S. of a category called the working poor. Uh, in the U.K., sometimes it's called the precariat. Uh, and uh, how, how numerous are these people? In the United States, about one out of every five households uh, uses at least one means-tested welfare program, public assistance. Uh, and about 70%, the majority of these households, are headed by a full-time worker. So these are not uh, people who are out of the labor market through no fault of their own, uh, depending on, on government largesse. These are full-time workers who, no matter how hard they work, how many hours they work, they cannot support themselves, much less uh, children or, or a caregiving spouse. Uh, so the official story is, well, this is the result of technology and globalization. There's nothing that can be done about it. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll uh, subsidize these low-wage full-time workers, either directly through cash, uh, the earned income tax credit in the U.S., or through in-kind benefits, uh, which in the U.S. are food stamps, housing. Uh, housing is more important in Britain than in the U.S., public housing, uh, council housing. Uh, but So I call this new system, the neoliberal system, the uh, low-wage, high-welfare system. It's not high-welfare in the sense that the welfare state is particularly generous. It's quite miserly in the United States. But it's high-welfare because you have a fifth to a quarter of the population which gets its income from two sources. Uh, it's inadequate wages and then this package of welfare subsidies. Yeah. I mean, when you outline it like that, and, and you do so in the book as well, it is an extraordinary state of affairs where what could be done a few decades ago, which is that you could have a full-time job and expect not to be poor, expect to earn a wage that would allow you to live a fairly comfortable life, can no longer be done for many, many people. And you're right, it's a, it, there is a similar situation in the UK. We refer to them as the in-work poor who um, whose wages are topped up by the welfare state, which means, as you outline in, in relation to the US in your book, it means that the welfare state, the taxpayer, is essentially subsidizing big business by um, paying extra money because they're not paying their, their workforce enough. Um, I want to get back onto that in a moment in relation to the welfare state and the role that it plays in some of the problems that you're talking about. But let's kick off again with um, what you refer to at the start of your book as the big lie, the big myth, which is this idea that you get paid what you're worth. And you have this really, I think, important paragraph early on in the book where you make the point that it seems commonsensical to many people that a hedge fund manager or a corporate exec would get paid literally as million times as much, in some cases, as a janitor or uh, a woman who cleans the office at the end of the day. It's come to be treated as common sense that the differential between those wages would be so vast because the hedge fund manager at the top 
has competitive skills that the market wants to pay for, whereas the janitor at the bottom doesn't. So just untangle that for us in terms of why you think that's a lie, why you thought it was important to open your book with that observation about the the, the mythical nature of that claim that we hear so often. Well, there are two theories of how wages are set. Uh, there's uh, the academic neoclassical economics theory called a marginal revenue product theory. Uh, and there's the... Uh, the reality, which is uh, the bargaining power theory, if you if you look at the classical liberals, Adam Smith and J.S. Mill and Alfred Marshall, uh, and these were champions of free markets, but they took it for granted that uh, wages were set by the relative bargaining power of uh, workers and employers. Uh, and uh, Mill and Marshall, who is thought of as very conservative, but uh, uh, Marshall, uh, like Mill, supported labor unions. Uh, in order to allow workers to get a better price for selling their labor. Uh, about 100 years ago, uh, when classical economics gave way to neoclassical mathematical economics, this uh, marginal revenue product theory was devised, much to the delight of employers a century ago. Uh, and it said that uh, the market sets wages based on how much each individual worker contributes to the overall profits of the firm, which kind of sounds reasonable, but then if you start thinking about it, uh, why shouldn't your pay be variable from day to day and hour to hour, depending on how productive you are, okay? So if you're tired in the afternoon, shouldn't your pay go down? And then if you're really busy, shouldn't it shoot up? Right? Shouldn't we be wearing little bracelets, monitoring how, how much we're contributing to the firm? And when you look at large firms in particular, uh, it's just impossible to say how much the vice president for marketing contributes to the profits of, uh, say, Boeing, the aircraft company, you know, compared to an executive secretary. Uh, so, so this is a myth, and it's used to uh, uh, basically justify employers – claiming that uh, wages, which in reality reflect the weak bargaining power of labor in the United States, I focus in the U.S., but it's relevant to every country, uh, that this, this is just some mystical thing. And if you interfere with the labor market, then it will cause mass unemployment and dogs and cats living together and civilization will collapse and so on. So, so it's, it's, it's ideology posing as scholarship. Yes, um, I think that's very well put. And I wanted to ask you about the decline of the bargaining power of the American worker. You touch on this, you have a chapter called The Bad End of the Bargain. And you look at the weakening of private sector trade unions in particular in the United States in recent decades. And some of the figures that you have here are extraordinary. You talk about how Membership in private sector labor unions in the U.S. Uh, declined from 35.7% in 1953 to 6.2% in 2019. So we have an extraordinary situation. You, you spell out very clearly that around 94% of American workers in the private sector are not unionized and do not have those protections that people might expect to have from uh, ruthless bosses, from bad pay, from being forced to do work uh, that they might not want to do. That's an extraordinary number of people who don't have those 
protections. Just outline for us how the end of that, that bargaining power plays out in the American workplace. What does it mean for the average non-unionized private sector worker in terms of what they have to accept when they go to work? Well, even though no more than a third of the American private sector workforce was unionized in the 1950s and 60s, uh, it nevertheless helped out the non-union workers because uh, if you had a non-union job, you could always threaten to quit and go to a unionized employer. Uh, and And when it came to patterns of benefits vacations, and so on, the non-union employers had to compete with the uh, good benefits and good wages of the union employers. Uh, So now that we're at 6% and falling, the private sector union membership in the U.S. is lower than it was under Herbert Hoover uh, before the, the Great Depression and the New Deal. So it's all but extinct in the private sector. Uh, and deunionization is one of the methods, it's the most important method, that has been used to crush worker bargaining power because, let's face it, uh, in, in neoclassical economic theory and in libertarian ideology, uh, if you're a janitor and you're, you're negotiating the terms of your contract with, you know, Apple or Facebook or – you're not negotiating. You know, it's take it or leave it. The, the janitor has no bargaining power. Fifty percent of American workers in the private sector – work for companies with more than 500 employees. So big business employment is the norm in the U.S. Uh, Individuals can't possibly negotiate uh, wages and benefits with a 500-person employee uh, company. So unless the workers are able to pool their bargaining power through collective bargaining in some form, and I'm very critical of the inherited system in the U.S. I'm not defending that. But unless you have some kind of collective bargaining power, uh, then it's just take it or leave it from the employers. Uh, And in addition to crushing the unions, uh, partly it's through geographic labor arbitrage. Uh, So from 1945 all the way up until the the end of the Cold War, many American companies moved from pro-union states in the Northeast and Midwest to states with anti-union laws in the South and the Southwest. And that was a half century of geographic labor arbitrage to escape unionization. Then with the end of the Cold War and two billion new workers coming into the global labor market, these same companies uh, moved to Mexico and China and Vietnam and so on globally. But it's to escape unionization. It wasn't because, you know, poor campesinos in Mexico, you know, who uh, uh, are working in factories or farm girls in South China have unique skills, it's just they're, they're cheaper uh, than their American and European counterparts. I want to ask you in relation to that, the decline of bargaining power, the decline of unionization amongst uh, American private sector workers, I want to talk to you about the public debate that swirls around that. So not only the fact of it happening and the way that it happened, but also how it's understood in the public realm of, of political discussion. There's a really interesting part in the book, you talk about the tech industries And you quote the analysis of some British academics who talked about the Californian ideology. So the Californian ideology is a kind of combination of the freewheeling nature of the hippies and the entrepreneurial zeal of the yuppies. The hippie come yuppie that we're all familiar with from the image of the the Silicon Valley hip, rich uh, uh, capitalist operator. And these people are 
very anti-union, but it often gets hidden behind a gloss of being politically correct in other ways, caring about minorities, supporting Black Lives Matter, making statements about transgenderism, whatever else it might be. So to what extent do you think there is a a new form of capitalism, or rather, I guess, a way of putting the question, to what extent do you think the ruthlessness of contemporary capitalism in terms of its destruction of bargaining power and its paying of exceptionally low wages often gets hidden behind a facade that seems politically on message and even quite left-wing? And does that confuse the public understanding and the public discussion about how some workers are suffering in the in the contemporary workplace? Oh, definitely. Uh, the, the great innovation of neoliberal capitalism, sometimes called woke capitalism, was was this image that it's cool and hip and compassionate. Uh, so if you go back to the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, companies seem stodgy, right? You know, all of the male workers at IBM had to wear suits and ties and they had to wear white shirts. Shirts of other colors were not permitted. Uh, and so you had the hippie rebellion in the 1960s and the counterculture uh, was rebelling against the organization man. What happened with the tech revolution, it was initially portrayed as the little David against the giant Goliath, right? You know, you have these brave little startups, Apple and Google and so on, overthrowing these old behemoth corporations like IBM. Uh, but of course, uh, successful Companies scale up and become behemoths themselves. But they've managed, uh, and a certain amount of bribery is involved, that is, through the largesse they throw around to the academy and to think tanks and to the media and politicians. But even though now they're much more like IBM in 1960, uh, these companies try to maintain this image of being cool and uh, uh, being politically enlightened uh, race, gender, and class were the trinity in the American left in the 60s and 70s. Uh, class has conveniently dropped out. Uh, so it's all race and gender all of the time. But it, it, is this a new form of capitalism? No. Uh, as I point out in my book, Hell to Pay, uh, the union-busting techniques that are used by Apple and Google and Intel and these other uh, tech corporations— and Amazon, they're no different from the ones that were used by U.S. Steel or, or uh, you know, the automobile companies 100 years ago. Uh, it's just that their, their owners, instead of wearing three-piece suits with pocket watches, you know, they have turtlenecks uh, and, you know, they hang out with uh, actors and actresses and presidents. Uh, but, but they're no different in their approach towards labor. Of, uh, of anti-labor tycoons like Henry Ford 100 years ago. Let's touch a bit on how boss rule, as you refer to it, and I, I do love some of that rather old-fashioned language that you use. You don't hear the word boss often enough these days, especially since some on the left, as you say, have abandoned class almost entirely in favor of talking about race and gender and sexuality all the time. Um, you write about boss rule and you have this very interesting chapter, which I found actually quite shocking. There's some things in there that I think are quite specific to the United States, um, where the boss class is not even content with its wiping out of private sector unionization so that we end up in a situation where 94% of 
private sector workers in the US are not unionized, uh, but they want to push even further in terms of weakening the bargaining power of their workforce. And there are some examples in that chapter that I found quite alarming. So, for example, forced arbitration, where uh, workers must sign uh, a document that says they won't sue their employers, but instead will arbitrate through different mechanisms rather than suing them in a court of law, which instantly says to them, listen, you have no way of speaking back, essentially. The the unions are gone and now even the the legal road is being closed down to you. Um, And there are other mechanisms too that you describe where the bargaining power has been weakened. I think this will be shocking to a lot of British readers because even though trade unions here have declined in a very interesting way, and I think the current flash strikes that we're seeing in the public sector um, with nurses and, and doctors and train drivers, I think they can sometimes disguise the reality of a withering trade union system and fewer days lost to strike compared with the 1970s. We're seeing a, a decline in trade unionism here as well. But we haven't quite reached the level of the ruthlessness of of boss rule, as you describe it, in parts of the low-pay workforce in the United States. So could you just speak to us about things like forced arbitration and what that does to the worker in terms of how much it limits his or her ability to speak back in any way at all? Oh, yeah. Well, you're quite right. So the the employers, the boss class, and boss, by the way, is a Dutch-American word that was adopted by the American working class in the 1830s because they refused to use the old Anglo-American term master uh, with its overtones of slavery in America. So they borrowed this Dutch word, boss. Uh, But the boss class, as I call it, uh, they have all kinds of ways to weaken the bargaining power, even of the single individual who's totally bereft of any union support. Uh, and, And the forced arbitration is one. Uh, another is the non-compete clause uh, buried in this, these clauses that uh, the employers force workers to sign, uh, often are promises that you will not compete with any of their, the company's rivals. Well, if you can't threaten to quit if you're mistreated and go to work for the rival company, then you really have very little bargaining power. And then finally, there are illegal but widely practiced uh, things like uh, no poach agreements, where uh, the the executives of firms in an industry get together and they say we will not lure away your employees if if you don't lure away ours, uh, and it's kind of the flip side of the non compete. It makes sure that uh, workers cannot get uh, firms competing for the workers' personal services uh, and the. The no poach thing is so insidious. It started out in Silicon Valley. Firms like uh, Apple and Google and Pixar and many others had to pay serious sums of money. Although they're so rich, you know, it's just kind of a slap on the wrist for them. For for no poaches with their engineers and computer scientists and so on to minimize their bargaining power and thus their ability to ask for higher wages. Uh, this spread to fast food in the United States. So you had these these secret agreements that were illegal but widespread uh, among fast food restaurants like McDonald's and Wendy's and so on. So if you were paid the minimum wage at Wendy's and you quit and then you went to McDonald's, they wouldn't hire you because you were on a secret blacklist that the employers had put together. 
in order to keep wages low and, and worker bargaining power weak. So, so it's it's an angry book. It's the angriest book I've ever written. <laughs> but but I think if if you learn as I did in researching it, all of these ways that these companies just pulverize the ability of people to ask for higher wages and better vacations and benefits, then, then it should make you angry. And I should say the U.S. is by far the worst in the Western world. Uh, so you, you've had similar trends in Britain and in Western Europe. But the U.S. had the bloodiest labor conflict in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, and it has the most absolutely ruthless suppression of, of uh, working class people uh, since the 1980s and 1990s. It is an angry book, a justifiably angry book, I think. And as I say, I recognize a lot of the trends that you're talking about, even here in the European context. But there are parts of it where I think, God, the American boss class is incredibly ruthless, even in comparison to the British boss class, who are hardly paragons of virtue themselves. Um, okay, another way in which um, the American workers' wage is kept low, dangerously low, um, is through the offshoring of work and and also through the weaponization of immigration. And I thought your chapters on those two things were very interesting. I'll come on to the immigration thing in a minute because I think that takes a bit of care in terms of really working out the impact that um, the use of immigration has on the American workers' wage. But firstly, on offshoring, you talk about the use of offshoring by corporations in the US where they offshore work elsewhere as a means of crushing worker power at home. Just explain to us how that works. What is the motivation for offshoring? Do you think you've already touched upon the possibility that it's done in order to escape unionization and the pressures of unionization or just to escape having to uh, explain yourself to your American workers in the country in which you operate and it's much easier to go overseas and exploit them instead. Um, is that the motivation or is the motivation that things are just much cheap, much more cheaply made in other parts of the world or is it a combination of those two things which means that more American companies are offshoring aspects of their work? Well, for the last 30 years I've read both the the New York Times and Washington Post and Financial Times op-ed pages in which we were told by these eminent establishment paragons uh, that Americans lack the skills necessary to compete in the global economy. And that's why these companies are moving to China or Mexico or the Philippines or whatever. And, they ne and Americans need to work harder and get more skills and education. At the same time, for the last three decades, I've read the business and financial press where they use the term labor arbitrage, where they say, uh, of course, this is being driven by low wages, right? <laughs> so the, the business press is quite honest about it. And when it comes to uh, immigrant guest workers, a category of immigrant workers, like uh, H-1Bs in, in the U.S. and their various others, you get labor contractors. Uh, if I understand it correctly, Prime Minister Sunak's father-in-law, his company was involved in this Indian labor contracting system, right? Mm, yeah. uh, this is indentured servitude. This is like a centuries-old form of labor exploitation mm. where you can only work in the country for the, c the company that sponsors you. So there you have, uh, even if you're fairly well-paid, as some indentured servant professionals are, so-called guest workers, uh, you have no bargaining power at all. I mean, you're literally bound labor. It's like serfdom. 
Uh, you cannot quit your employer without leaving the country. And the most fundamental right of workers is the ability to quit your job without being deported, right? Uh, the other thing that you, there's a total disconnect between the neoliberal establishment press and scholarship on immigration. So if you read, you know, the FT and the New York Times and Washington Post, columnists and pundits, they say studies have shown that uh, immigration does not suppress wages. I've read all the studies. The vast majority of show that they do suppress wages uh, for those who compete with the immigrants with low levels of education. That's the, the National Academies of Sciences in the United States. The gold standard has two reports, 1996 and 2016. They say it suppresses wages for less educated workers who compete with less educated immigrants. Now, they, they put a gloss on this by saying that, but it may be a wash in a couple of generations from now, assuming these low-wage workers catch up and their children. But that's actually what the reports say. Another uh, story, at least in the U.S., I don't know about the U.K., is that uh, Americans won't do a growing number of jobs, farm work, you know, janitorial services, et cetera. Well, I, I've, I've looked, I've read all that I could. I cannot find any case where citizen farm workers just threw down their tools one day and said, oh, enough of this. I'm quitting farm work, right? What you see is, beginning with the liberalization of immigration policy in the 1960s and 70s, and it was an inadvertent effect. It was not intended to greatly expand immigration, but you get both expanded legal and expanded illegal immigration, and then the employer lobby uh, lobbies against enforcing laws against illegal immigration while ratcheting up these other categories. So what you see is that occupations like janitorial services in Los Angeles was largely African-Americans who belonged to unions. Uh, it was a very well-paying job up until the 70s and 80s and 90s. The growing number of illegal immigrant workers from Mexico and Central America who uh, were used to replace them. Uh, and to destroy the unions. And the same is true of the United Farm Workers, led by the great Mexican-American uh, labor organizer, uh, Cesar Chavez. Uh, the, the employers used uh, illegal immigration to destroy that union. And today, half of all American farm workers are illegal immigrants from Latin America. Uh, the other half are largely similar from Latin Americans, uh, who are legal either as guest workers or as they came in as relatives uh, of a U.S. citizen. And I'm, I'm by no means against immigration. I mean, we should have a generous refugee policy. Uh, we should have skilled immigrants. There's no big backlash against professors and, you know, uh, orchestra conductors and so on. Uh, but if we have one out of five or one out of four Americans, uh, including naturalized citizens who were foreign-born, if they're dependent on food stamps and housing vouchers and uh, the earned income tax credit to get along, why are we importing millions of poor people every year, legally or illegally? makes no sense. It's such an interesting discussion, and I've kind of changed my mind on it in different ways over the years. Some of the things that you've just talked about there, and which you also discuss in your book, 
where you talk about immigration as a labor economics question and not just a, a, an anti-racist social justice question. And you say that in treating it as a labor economics question, you're violating one of the great taboos of the modern era, which is that immigration can only be talked about and only be thought about as an anti-racist issue, as a social justice issue. Um, some of that, what you described there, was really brought home to me after the vote for Brexit in the UK in 2016, when we had people from the overclass, as you refer to this group, uh, we had people from the overclass openly saying things like, well, who will make my morning coffee in Pret-a-Manger? Right. I mean, someone literally said that on television. It was quite shocking. But there was an undertone to a lot of the discussion, which was, well, where will I get my au pair from now? If I can't get a, a cheap person from Eastern Europe, who will make my sandwiches when I go to my well-paid job? Uh, and pick them up in the morning. Uh, that that was a, a real part of the discussion, and it really really brought home to me how central a liberal approach to immigration was to that overclass of people who benefit from globalization in a way that ordinary working people often do not. But I wanted to ask you, following on from that, you, you will know, and you touch upon this in the book a lot. Um, the problem with the offshoring discussion. Uh, where uh, corporations offshore lots of their work elsewhere, where it's more cheaply done. And the problem with the immigration discussion, where people like you talk about its economic impact on working Americans, these two things are presented as great humanitarian initiatives. So you talk about in the book, in relation to offshoring, you quote Paul Krugman, for example, from 1997, where he wrote a piece called In Praise of Cheap Labor, where he presented offshoring as having benefits for workers overseas because, and I've heard other people say, the only thing worse than being exploited by capitalism is not being exploited by capitalism. And that's an argument we often hear in relation to Western corporations' exploitation of third world workers. And then immigration is continually presented as a humanitarian question only. You're not allowed to talk about its economic consequences. Um, how much of a problem do you think that humanitarian gloss is? And is that another way in which the overclass and the capitalist class misuse or misappropriate progressive language to disguise what is often actually quite a ruthless uh, development? Well, before I answer that, let me say that, uh, in fact, offshoring did not lead directly uh, or, or even indirectly to the development of China, South Korea, Taiwan, and so on. Uh, there you had strong developmental states which uh, engaged in selective protectionism uh, in rural land reform, in educational programs. These are very powerful uh, economic nationalist uh, societies. Uh, and they selectively allowed some foreign direct investment uh, in order to transfer money and skills. Uh, to Japan, South Korea, not so much Japan, which was very protectionist, uh, or South Korea, but more Taiwan and Singapore and China. But they used this money and they used the training from Western corporations to build up their own national rivals to those corporations. So it's very short-sighted on the part of Western capitalists to basically create their successors. But it was not trickle-down by any means. Uh, and the argument that we're helping out individual immigrants uh, who are coming from poor countries and getting jobs in the U.S. or Europe, even if it's true, uh, well, it is true in the case of those individuals. There is no doubt they're better off. 
than they were in Nigeria or in Venezuela or Poland, in the case of the UK. Uh, but the claim that the remittances that they pay to their families in their bank accounts in their home countries will lead to development is, is completely false. As I demonstrate in the book, even countries like Mexico, only about 3% of their GDP comes from money sent back home by an enormous number of Mexican immigrants uh, living in the U.S. So there's no factual basis to the claim that uh, offshoring was a favor that lifted millions of Chinese out of poverty or that it's lifting, you know, helping to develop Mexico or, or other source countries of immigrants. What it does is it soothes the conscience of the ruling class in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, I don't think this is propaganda directed at the working class, because the working class knows better, right? <laughs> they're competing uh, with immigrants, or their towns have been destroyed when the factory was shut down and, and offshored. Uh, but, I, but I think the ruling class wants to believe that it is benevolent. They don't want to think that, you know, they're, they're hand-rubbing, mustache-twirling villains. Uh, so, so I think this is... It's a kind of false consciousness, ironically, on the part of the elites. Uh, and, and like you, I, it, countless times I've heard someone saying that, oh, you know, uh, uh, how benevolent they are to pay their immigrant nanny off the books less than the minimum wage. And uh, that this is some kind of, well, if this is really benevolent, why aren't you paying her Social Security payroll tax, which you're legally bound to do? but none of the employers of nannies do in the United States. Why are you paying poverty wages in the black market, right? If you're this great, enlightened, altruistic, progressive person, you know? So the servant question, as they used to call it in Britain and the U.S., that essentially vanished in the middle of the 20th century. So to having servants was the mark of middle-class status in the United States, as it was in Britain, uh, before the New Deal, from the 1930s up until the 1970s, and I was born in 1962, uh, people didn't have servants, even affluent professionals. Uh, you, you would see on TV that some rich people somewhere had maids and butlers and so on. Uh, but So even a bank vice president in Austin, Texas, where I grew up, uh, would not have teams of low-wage workers as gardeners. He would show off it was usually, it was always a he, uh, his, his affluence by riding a fancy high-tech 1970s lawnmower, right? Uh, so, so my generation, thanks to this flood of uh, low-wage immigration that, that really accelerated in the 70s and 80s, both legal and illegal, uh, it's like the Raj in British India. I mean, you know, you have nannies, you have maids, you have gardeners, uh, you have chauffeurs, uh, and our parents and grandparents would be astonished by how cheap servants are. Yeah, I think I think I've um, I've said it before that one of the things that startles me most when I go to New York City, especially to Manhattan, is that during the day you will very often see young white kids. Um, being brought around and looked after by non-white women. Yeah, it's like it's like the old South. Yeah, and you see it all the time, and it's extraordinary. We have a similar situation in the UK, although uh, lots of au pairs here tend to come from Europe. Um, they are white as well, so it's a different situation, but similar in other ways. 
Um, I want to talk to you about one more aspect of the low wage problem before we then just look at, at some of the impact that the, the crisis of, of pay has on, on society more broadly. Um, you mentioned there protectionism in relation to Japan and other East Asian economies, some of which are highly protectionist. But I want to talk to you now about a different kind of protectionism that you talk about in the book, or you refer to it as a form of protectionism within the US itself which is the protectionism that individuals employ in terms of getting the credentials you now need in order to make a living that means you won't be poor. So you have a chapter on the credential arms race. And this is a situation where, as you've already described, it is very, very difficult in the contemporary market for working class people to have a full-time job and enjoy the kind of life they might have expected to enjoy 50 years ago. And lots of professions are now closed off to only people who have got the right university diploma or the right occupational license, various credentials that they need in order to get those jobs that do pay enough money to have a fairly comfortable life. And you refer to that as the credential arms race. Now, of course, that's a very unfair system from the get-go because in order to go to university for a number of years and get that diploma or get that degree, you have to have time, you have to have money, you have to have resources. So it's instantly shut off to a significant section of society. How important do you think the credential arms race is in terms of further exacerbating the, the crisis of pay in the workforce, but also in creating this new graduate elite as well, whose vested interest, I guess, once they leave university and enter the better workforce, is that they then become convinced that there is uh, something to celebrate about the credential arms race rather than to see it as a problem? Well, there are actually two credential arms races, as I point out in Hell to Pay. There's the uh, university credential, the diploma, and there's occupational licensing, which has taken off like crazy in the U.S. It's at the state level mostly. But things that used to be done by anybody, like being a florist and arranging flowers, you have to have, you know, months of education and all of that. And these educational requirements, it's kind of like the debate about wages, the two theories of how wages are set. Uh, the official theory is that uh, these are necessary to perform your job. Uh, the other theory is that these are used to create cartel-like professions and occupations by weeding out competition. And so you, you have a tight labor market for those who manage to pass the credential bar, and, and they do have more bargaining power. I mean, if you're a uh, you know, PhD or an MA, you have more bargaining power uh, within particular professions than high school graduates do. Uh, the problem with it is, according to the Federal Reserve, uh, about a third of Americans are working in jobs which do not require the diploma that they have. Uh, so the classic example is somebody with a bachelor's degree at 30 or 40 working at Starbucks. And so why is Starbucks preferring – I'm just using this as an example. I mean, I, I don't know if any Starbucks does this. But let's say the coffee shop uh, will hire the graduate over the high school graduate, as we say in the U.S. Uh, well, you know, having a diploma shows that you show up, you're disciplined, you don't have behavioral problems – so it's just a screening device. Uh, but there have been studies that I cite in the book showing that employers now in the U.S. are saying that a college diploma is required for jobs, 
which are presently held by people with high school diplomas. <laughs> so from the employer's point of view, it's a cheap screening device. From the, the uh, graduate's point of view or the uh, licensed professional's point of view, it's a way to minimize the competition and boost your own uh, income within a particular profession. And as we can discuss, it has all sorts of knock-on effects uh, that are terribly destructive, both to people's personal lives, but also to society as a whole. Yeah, I'm going to come on to those effects in just one minute, but there's something else I wanted to ask you in relation to the American working class. It's a bit of a sweeping question, so take it as you as you want. But the welfare state, is the welfare state the friend of the American worker or the enemy of the American worker? And this is a question I tussle with here in the UK as well, in many ways. I think the development of the welfare state here in Britain was a positive development. It did protect people from the extreme harsh impacts of poverty and, and periods of unemployment and prevented them from falling into hunger. And that's a, an important thing for a civilized society to do. But it's interesting, if you look at the history of the development of, of the welfare state in the UK, the people who bristled at the idea most tended to be working class people, tended to be even trade unions, because they were worried that it would be a sop to unemployed people and a way of society excusing its failure to provide full employment by instead handing out charity to unemployed people. So there was, there's always been a, a tense relationship, I think, between the working classes and the welfare state. But you write in the book about how the welfare state can help working people, but it can also be used against them. It can be weaponized against them. And we, we do see that in relation to the willingness of the contemporary welfare state to top up the extraordinarily poor wages that some corporations are paying. That happens in the US, that happens in the UK as well, where people earn so little from these rich corporations that are employing them that the taxpayer has to come in and give them some extra cash. Are we now in a situation where the welfare state is a problem for working people? Does it need radical reform? What's what's your view on, on that? Well, as I argue in Hell to Pay, you can have a pro-worker or a pro-employer welfare state. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century, we had a pro-worker welfare state, and it was fairly small. So by I'm using the term welfare to mean means-tested public assistance. So I'm excluding from welfare social insurance, that is universal programs like Social Security in the U.S. or Medicare that are paid for by workers uh, out of payroll taxes. These are earned benefits. So welfare in, in this sense means essentially government charity. It's for people who have contributed nothing, but out of a sense of decency, uh, society subsidizes them nonetheless, so they're not destitute. Uh, so the pro-worker ideal is a very small residual welfare state. It's not very big at all in terms of means-tested public assistance. Basically, if you work uh, in the U.S. 40 hours a week, uh, you should not be poor. You should not need any means-tested social programs. And uh, social insurance takes care of uh, the temporarily unemployed through unemployment insurance before you get your next job. It's all built around work, the, you know, the living wage social insurance system. Uh, and then when you retire, you have this government-guaranteed pension that you've, you've uh, contributed to your whole working career. Uh, we, we've moved into this new kind of welfareism, which, as we've discussed, uh, is for the in-work poor, the working poor. 
And this is really a new development of the 1970s and 80s and 90s. Uh, and it was, it's been embraced by uh, progressives who see it, they, they don't care about work. They see it as a stepping stone to a universal basic income. Uh, they would be glad to dispense with the work requirement altogether. But it's also embraced by capitalists and uh, managers, particularly low-wage businesses, because it means the taxpayers are, are subsidizing their workers so they don't have to pay them a living wage. So it's a kind of unholy alliance of the redistributionist left uh, and this really Victorian or Dickensian, you know, low-wage sweatshop right. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Yeah, that's that's very well put. That's a good line. Um Right, let's talk about the impact that all the things that you've just been talking about and which you talk about uh, in extraordinary depth in this very important new book of yours, let's talk about the impact that this has on American society and American culture. And what you argue in the book uh, centrally is that there are five crises that make up the contemporary American crisis. There's a demographic crisis, there's a social crisis, there's an identity crisis, and there's a political crisis. And those four are all exacerbated uh, and worsened, and in some ways caused by the fifth crisis, which is the economic crisis and uh, the crisis of low pay, the weakening of working class people, the uh, mistreatment of significant sections of the workforce and and the knock-on consequences that that has. And you talk in depth about those consequences. And there's one that I wanted just to kick off with, which is the demographic issue and uh, the way in which the crisis of low pay, the crisis of pay in generally, impacts on the formation of families uh, and the creation of of new life, essentially, and and the willingness of people to, to marry, to cohabit, to commit, to have children. And you talk about how the marital and reproductive behavior of different classes in society has always been shaped by um, economic questions and the questions of uh, how much clout they have in terms of earning and how secure they feel economically. So what is the consequence of uh, of the things you've just been talking about? What, are, what have those consequences been for demography, for marriage, for family formation in, in the U.S.? Well, I argue that as a result of the, the low wages at the bottom in economic insecurity, you, you have uh, two macro social trends. One is collapsing fertility. Uh, the other is rising illegitimacy, uh, divided by class lines, however. Uh, so, so let's start with the, the first one. It's the so-called marriage gap. Now, back in the 1990s, uh, the conservatives in the U.S., and I think in Britain too, probably Thatcherites, thought we have these traditional family values, married for life, working class couples, and then you have all of these Hollywood divorcees and they're setting a bad example. Uh, that's not true in the 2020s. In the 2020s in the U.S., uh, the people who marry and stay married uh, tend to be college-educated, highly paid professionals, but they tend to marry late 
in their 30s, after both the man and the woman uh, have an advanced degree of some kind. Uh, so where you see rising illegitimacy rates, and it's uh, a supermajority among African Americans, it's about 50% among Hispanic Americans, and about 30% among uh, non-Hispanic whites born out of wedlock, uh, it's in the working class. Uh, and so in some cases, you have what in the common law countries we used to call common law marriage, where you have a couple living together. They just, you know, haven't been formally married. But we have rising numbers of uh, single uh, female-headed uh, families in all races uh, in the low-income groups. And this should not be a surprise uh, if you go back to the first part of the 20th century in the U.S. and the 19th century, desertion and fatherlessness and illegitimacy were commonplace in the uh, white working class, as well as others in, in the U.S., and I think in the U.K. as well. One of the luxuries of high wages for workers after World War II was this period of the so-called traditional family was not, in fact, traditional for the working class, right? You know, to think of Eliza Doolittle and My Fair Lady, right? And and her, uh, you know, apparently the product of an unwed uh, mother, you know, with, with the father who had deserted her. Uh, so that was the norm. And so in that sense, we're going back to the norm where marriage is a luxury of the affluent. Uh, so working class people of all races in the U.S. still have kids, but they have fewer kids than they would have. Uh, because a lot of them have no partners in marriage or, or out. Uh, they're, they're completely single, often not by choice. Uh, the uh, uh, marriage is the best indicator of fertility in the U.S. Uh, that is, if you're married, you're much more likely to have kids. The problem is, since marriage is deferred by the credential arms race into the 30s, you know, biology takes its toll. And we see this pattern, which I mentioned, that is Americans, and there's similar uh, studies in, in Europe as well, they say they want two or more children. It's just, uh, they don't want eight children. They don't want six children. But in the Western countries, they generally want two or three children. And they end up with one, right? Because they just had kids too late, whether they were married or not. And that causes demographic implosion, which... Either you're going to have massive pronatal programs, and you know Hungary is trying this. Sweden tried it. Uh, you can you can raise fertility a little bit, but it's very expensive to uh, get a, a slight uptick in fertility. Or in order to maintain the same population level, you have to have ever growing share of the population has to be foreign born, which creates you know political and cultural and economic problems of its own. Yeah, and another frustrating element of, of what you've just described is it's another good example of where so-called progressive public discourse molds itself around the things you've just described and the conditions you've just described and represents that problematic reality as something positive. So something that we get in amongst the, the overclass left here in the UK all the time is the idea that single-parent families are just as good as two-parent families. Who are we to judge? this constant celebration of different forms of family life, overlooking the fact that kids who are brought up in a two-parent household where there is a stable income are much more likely to flourish and do well and not fall into uh, social disrepair 
than kids who grow up in in a broken home and and that's overlooked so i think that's a, that's an interesting theme of our times where continually the devastating impact of contemporary capitalism is often repackaged by supposed progressive voices are something that's good for society and good for people, whereas, as you very well described, the opposite is often the case. Well, a perfect example uh, was provided by the Obama and Biden campaigns. So the Obama campaign, I think it was the second campaign in 2012, uh, they wanted to show all of the good things the welfare state did for Americans. So they created this fictitious uh, person, Julia, who had a son— and it just showed all of the welfare benefits they got, you know, throughout life from free kindergarten to Social Security. And apparently Julia had no husband, you know, who was the father of the, the little boy. And then this got a lot of backlash from conservatives. Nevertheless, the Biden campaign doubled down in 2020. Uh, and these were cartoon series. They showed pictures. So in this case, it was Linda and Leo, her son. And again, there was no husband no grandparents, no siblings. Uh, so you've had two Democratic presidencies in a row treating the normative American as an unwed, apparently unwed, single mother uh, who survives with all kinds of goodies from the government. So back in the 70s, you had people like George Gilder uh, uh, arguing that the welfare state was becoming, in effect, the spouse uh, of many uh, American women with children. Yeah. And this just sounded like the most crazy reactionary thing. And here you have, you know, uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden saying, yeah, she's married to Uncle Sam. And and Uncle Sam is a good husband and a good dad to little Leo, and as well as to his wife, Linda, right? <laughs> yeah, it is dystopian. It is, it is so worrying. And it is shocking that... Um, supposed progressive voices support that, both in the US and also similar developments here in the UK and in Europe. Um, okay, let's talk about the impact of the wage crisis, the low pay problem, uh, in terms of the, the social crisis and the identity crisis. And you describe very well in the book, and I think this will, this will make sense instinctively to lots of readers of your book, uh, that in terms of the social crisis, it contributes to that sense of alienation that many people feel. If they don't have any bargaining power whatsoever in the workforce, they're not connected to a trade union. And that was very often the means through which people uh, offered each other solidarity, felt like they were part of a community, felt that they were a strong person in themselves because they were connected with others. It was often through trade unions that people achieved that sense of feeling of belonging and a feeling of purpose in contemporary society. Even with all the crap that capitalism tended to throw at them, they still had that sense. Um, you also talk about the decline in church attendance, the decline in other forms of social uh, connection that have, uh, that people will be familiar with. And that is inevitably going to have a knock-on effect, isn't it, on society's sense of itself and individual sense that they belong to a society. Do you, do you see that getting worse and worse, the, the, the anime that you talk about in relation to the culture of atomization that has been unleashed by these problems you're talking about? Oh, the, the data shows it. Uh, so the younger generation of Americans has far fewer friends than, than the preceding generations did. Uh, and people that they can talk to and that they can trust. Uh, and the term anomie, uh, I'm glad you used it. It was coined by uh, Emile Durkheim, the French sociologist, 
to mean alienation or normlessness. Uh, now, two data points. Uh, Durkheim was observing the broken down uh, pre-Union working class of uh, France and Europe in the in the late in the early industrial era. Uh, his solution for anime, which is not widely known in the English-speaking world, was uh, labor unions, was corporatism. He argued that unions could substitute for the village that many of these workers had left and prevent them from being all alone and helpless in the big city. Now, you flash forward a century to the end of the 20th century, early 21st, uh, and Robert Putnam, the American sociologist, is famous for his book Bowling Alone. The decline of bowling leagues is a symbol of anomie in the U.S. But what a lot of people overlook is a lot of these bowling leagues were union-organized. Uh, so the two mass membership organizations that were important for connecting working-class people to others, uh, in, particularly in big cities, were uh, trade unions and they were uh, churches and religious congregations of various kinds. And both of those are—the trade unions are almost extinct in the private sector in the U.S., uh, the U.S. Uh, is becoming unchurched rapidly, uh, and, and this is essentially about a generation or two behind Britain and Western Europe. You know, in terms of religious belief, uh, you know, that may be a wash. One of the functions of religion uh, comes from religare. It means to bind. Uh, it's just, it, it's a form of socialization. And when it vanishes, you know, uh, uh, surfing the web— Right and and clicking through cable channels is is not much of a substitute for human contact. Uh, and certainly in an employer environment, employer dominated environment, you really can't you know have lots of friendships because they may turn on you at any moment. And and in the United States in particular, with uh, HR, right, with the human resources uh, uh, commissar who works for the boss. So one thing you're taught in all uh, American businesses now is if there's any interpersonal conflict, any problems, uh, you take the problem to HR, take it to human research. HR is the hatchet man or hatchet woman <laughs> of, of the boss, right? Yeah. Uh, in unionized workplaces, you had shop stewards who would represent you, but HR represents the uh, the owners and the managers against you. So, you know, you'd be very foolish to have, you know, deep uh, friendships, uh, uh, and particularly in the age of political correctness and wokeness, where if you make an off-color joke or, you know, you use the wrong term, you can be denounced by the rival who wants your corner office to HR and fired. Uh, I'm so glad you said that about HR. I've I've never understood this idea that HR is the friend of the working person because it's so clearly not the case. And you touch upon one of the reasons it's I mean it's it's never been the case, but you touch on one of the reasons it's particularly not the case today, which is through the encroachment of identity politics into the workplace or or rather the embrace I would say of identity politics by the capitalist class often as a mechanism for reprimanding the workforce and controlling the workforce. And 
one thing I want to put to you is that, because you talk about the identity crisis as well, um, it does feel to me that there's a bit of a pincer movement at the moment, which has really got a stranglehold on working class people. So on one side, you have the boss class who are saying, look, embrace globalization, embrace this flexibility, as they call it, or precariat living, as others would refer to it, which really is a way of drawing people away from the unionization they might once have enjoyed into a direct relationship with the boss, in which, of course, the boss has far more power and influence over their lives. So you have that alienating dynamic on one side. And then on the other side, you have the so-called left or what passes for the left in, in 21st century Western society who are saying, look, identity politics is the way forward. Obsess over race, obsess over gender. Class is no longer important. And in fact, if you talk about the needs of the working classes, especially the white working class in any given uh, discussion, they will refer to that as a racist dog whistle, economic nationalism. What is wrong with you? How can you talk about issues like this? So there's this kind of pincer movement where both sides are continually dragging working people away from the social connections and the protective connections they might once have enjoyed with their fellow workers. And, and one of the means through which that is done is through identity politics in the workplace, and particularly in the US context, the weaponization, I would say, of racial identity politics as a means of um, controlling workers. And you do touch on the fact that race has become one of the credentials through which people can advance in certain situations and through which other people cannot advance. And certainly if we look at the Robin D'Angelo phenomenon, for example, she's the favorite author, as far as I can see, of, of many members of the corporate elite, all of whom seem to have her books on, on their shelves. Uh, you have these kind of anti-whiteness workshops in certain workplaces or certainly new forms of race management, which seem designed to separate workers from each other and to isolate them further. So you can talk a, a little bit about uh, the role that identity politics plays in the 21st century workplace and why it might be a problem. Well, there, there are two elements of it. One is from the employer's perspective. The other is from the point of view of individual workers. So from the employer's perspective, uh, identity politics is is just manifestly divide and rule. So, as I document in, in my book Hell to Pay, you have uh, corporations which, at the same time, they're paying law firms to bust unionization efforts. They're uh, dividing their workers into so-called voluntary affinity groups along racial lines, right? So you, on the one hand, all of the workers are brought for what are called captive meetings, where they're told that the company will go bankrupt if they join a union and they'll all lose their jobs. Uh, and then in the next all-staff meeting, they're told, well, sort yourselves out by race. So we'll have, and, and the American racial categories are absurd. For example, one of them is Asian and Pacific Islander that lumps together Indians, Chinese, Hawaii, I was just, these were all made up in the 1970s, but they have become Soviet nationalities in a sense. Uh, they're just these meaningless bureaucratic fake identities. Uh, but so they say, okay, well, divide into affinity groups, we'll have all of the non-Hispanic whites there, all of the Hispanics here, all of the African-Americans there, all of the Asian and Pacific Islanders there. And then like talk about if, if you're not a non-Hispanic white, an absurd term, by the way, for for uh, people in Europe. Uh, so, for example, I'm technically a non-Hispanic white because I'm white, but I'm not Hispanic, right? <laughs> so uh, that's what defines me. This is my essence. 
Uh, it's I'm not of uh, Latin American descent. Uh, so that is just divide and rule. Now, from the individual worker's point of view, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, the way to get it ahead was to turn your colleague or your boss into the Cheka or the NKVD, right? Uh, or in some cases, it was to claim proletarian status in the Soviet Union. It's, it's minority status in our quasi-Soviet overclass system. Uh, and so you see all of these cases of people like me, perfectly bland, non-Hispanic white Americans, who are constantly being unmasked. They claim they were, they were Middle Eastern or they were Hispanic or they were Native American or whatever. And these are professors, they're professionals, and they created this fake identity, and it worked. They were hired. They were promoted. They would not have been hired and promoted if, if not for masquerading uh, as a member of a minority group. Uh, and the culture of denunciation, uh, you know, what we saw in the last decade at these major journalistic venues that were liberal in politics, like New York Magazine, which expelled Andrew Sullivan, like uh, the New York Times, uh, the younger staffers would denounce the, the 40, 50-something editor for being uh, non-woke or politically incorrect, who was then fired. Well, what a great way to get a promotion, right? You know, it's like Stalin's purges allowed Khrushchev's generation to move up the, the ladder, the career ladder. The credential arms race, I argue, and it's not a point original with me. Many people have made this point, including um, Peter Turchin, who talks about surplus elites. But it leads to identity credentials that you can deploy when you're trying to get hired or you're trying to do in your rival for the promotion. Yeah, absolutely. And it is just so obviously divisive and toxic and undermining of the great social gains that have been made over the past 50 years in relation to uh, racial equality and, and racial peace. Um, okay, Michael, my final question for you is on what we can do about all of this. Now, I don't expect you to uh, give a lecture on how to fix the problem of um, low pay in the United States or the, the, the weakening of the working class across the Western world. But what do you think is the most important thing for us to, to look out for in relation to this discussion or to try to turn on its head? Towards the end of the book, you make a very interesting point where you say that people like you are often accused of being nostalgists. You want to turn the clock back to the 1950s or the 1940s, um, to the New Deal era and so on. And you make the point that um, actually in, in that period, things were uh, better for working class people in some ways. They had more clout, they had more power, but they were bad for many other sections of society. In the United States context, obviously, black people were excluded from many institutions and there was a high level of uh, segregation still. Um, so nostalgia is not the way forward, but you do make the point that some of the principles of that mid-20th century deal that was struck between working people and the rulers of society, some of those principles are worth holding on to, aren't they? So, so, so what should we hold on to as we move forward and try to redress the incredible unfairness and in some cases the savagery with which working class people are treated in contemporary society? Well, well the nostalgia argument I find very amusing because it says, well, you have to choose. You can have high wages and homophobia, or you can have gay rights and 
and poverty <laughs> wage. Like, yeah. well, why not have gay rights and high wages, right? Uh, or feminism or whatever. Uh, well, well, look, the industrial era in, in Britain, the first industrial country, and then the Western world, is like 150, 200 years old. Uh, and it's been in three periods. Uh, and in the first period, uh, up until about World War II, and then in the third period, from the 80s and 90s to the present, we've seen, you know, low wages and insecure jobs and weak worker power and all kinds of social pathologies that causes. So we only have one example uh, of a mass middle class and a prosperous, secure working class and family formation of people, you know, when they get out of, out of primary education. Uh, so why not come up with a version of that without all of the baggage that was accompanied at the time, including uh, racial and gender discrimination. Uh, so when it comes to actual practical remedies, I'm, I'm fairly realistic, I think. I argue that uh, the problem is more acute in some professions and some trades than others. So professionals, they're not doing that badly. You know, we can change contract laws so they, they have more bargaining power without having non-competes, no poaching clauses. But, but you know, they're, they're not a priority. Uh, Large-scale manufacturing and infrastructure industries are already somewhat unionized. And I argue for the U.S. to adopt what many European countries have, which is uh, national sectoral bargaining, multi-employer bargaining, which makes it easier uh, for workers. But they're not the priority either. The priority are this uh, quarter or fifth of the American workforce, uh, which cannot make ends meet week to week without government uh, wage subsidies and without all kinds of in-kind benefits, which have to be applied for separately. It's truly nightmarish if you know working. The food stamps, it's one application. You know, the housing voucher, it's a totally separate bureaucracy, totally separate means test. It's a nightmare. Uh, so the, the, the thing we should do immediately is bring back an old British institution that was copied in the rest of the English-speaking world, the wage board. Uh, and I, I point out that the young Winston Churchill in the 1900s introduced the first wage board uh, legislation in the U.S. What happens is you don't even go through the process of unionization for the worst-off workers. Uh, the government appoints a representative of employers, all the employers in a low-wage field, a representative of the workers, maybe a government representative, and you just set minimum standards and benefits for that field. So I think we need to clean up this poorest fifth or a quarter, uh, and then over time, we can move towards strengthening the working power of uh, other wage earners. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.